0: Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell story, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. So long before Hamilton took the world by storm, Lin-Manuel Miranda had another show on Broadway, In the Heights, and that was a pretty extraordinary success as well. It took a total of 13 Tony Award nominations for its original Broadway production and won four Tonys, including the Tony Award for Best Musical. Now, of course, it is a major motion picture that's available on HBO Max and at a theater near you. It can be tricky to adapt a very successful and beloved stage musical to the screen. So in order to make that happen, the production tapped veteran music supervisor, Steven Gazicki, who worked on the incredibly successful La La Land, as well as a number of other major movie musicals. And Lin-Manuel Miranda turned to an old collaborator, his college friend and one-time roommate, Bill Sherman, to act as the music producer. And uh, Bill has some really great stories because he was part of the In the Heights team from the very first workshops all the way through the off-Broadway show to the Broadway success and now to the the movie itself. So how difficult was it to turn this particular Broadway musical into a, a great and successful motion picture? Let's uh, listen to Steve and Bill talk about the process and find out how it happened.
1: I am Usnavi, and you probably never heard my name. Reports of my fame are greatly exaggerated. Morning, Usnavi. Pan caliente, café hey. con leche.
2: On these blocks, you can't walk two steps without bumping into someone's big plan.
0: I'm making moves, I'm making deals, but guess what? What? You still ain't got no skills. <laughs> Bill and Steve, thank you guys uh, for joining us to talk about uh, In the Heights. Uh, I really, I had a great experience watching this movie. Um, it was my first time back on a on a studio lot seeing a movie in a proper screening room in almost a year and a half, so it was a, an, an amazing treat uh, to go back and actually see this movie on the on the big screen. Um, you know, before we get started talking about the film, I kind of wanted to just give a little space. Uh, we have a lot of students who listen to our podcast, and a lot of of you know young professionals and aspiring professionals. So I want to just kind of ask you guys about your your professional career path and how you got to where you are today, and sort of just the short version of of um, you know your your origin story, uh,
2: if you will. So, Bill, you want to start off? Sure. My origin story. That makes it sound like it's such an epic major thing. It's not. Uh let's see. I grew up on Long Island. I went to, I was a saxophone player. I loved jazz in high school and stuff, things like that. I went to Wesleyan University to study music. Uh there I met the now famous lin Manuel Miranda. We became very good friends. Uh we worked on his musicals in college. Um I did not work on it in the Heights in college. I worked on the show that was after in the Heights, and then all of the subsequent ones post that. Uh, then, uh, we graduated from college. Uh, Lynn and I were roommates for about five years. Uh, and, uh, he was a substitute teacher at his high school. And I, uh, worked in the, uh, the computer department at MTV and on, um, on, uh, lunch breaks, we would take like four hour lunch breaks and we would go to the the drama bookshop and make up, uh, raps, uh, for a group that later became Freestyle Love Supreme. And we would work on, uh, in the Heights, uh, the then musical that has now since changed and become a major motion picture. And uh, uh, what else happened? Um, uh, we worked on that. Uh, and then uh, I, I sort of managed to get into television by accident. I was I did the electric company for um, Sesame Workshop. And then that led to being the music director of Sesame Street where I've been for 10 years. And then uh, and then we made the Hamilton business and we made the Hamilton record. And uh, then- Oh, that, uh, that little happened? thing. And here we are. And yeah. And, then, and now here oh, we are just... doing In the Heights as a movie, which is like, you know, this for me, like a 20 year odyssey that began when I was 20 and I'm now 40. And so uh, it's just a very weird sort of uh, uh, circle of life, <laughs> a very weird circle of things that have happened to me. And uh, I think uh, watching this movie now is is sort of like the ultimate meta Uh, Life situation, you know, most of my 20s and 30s were dedicated to that show. And so um, it's very gratifying for it to come out in this form and for people to see it and um, getting to work with all kinds of different people who have all different ways of bringing their talents to that show and that movie. And I don't know, here we are. Here's the present. Steve has a much more interesting career than I do. Facts.
1: I don't know. I don't know anybody else, but I would really love to see the musical of Bill and Lynn in college rooming together, sort of. The odd couple yeah
2: but... we are we continue this day to, to this day to be the odd couple and uh it's uh yeah we we, we were we were roommates in college we were roommates after college but we were pretty inseparable for most of college just like making musicals and being dumb and that kind of thing that's that's the title making musicals and being dumb
1: <laughs> your turn steve my turn um yeah i was born in michigan raised in san diego and i was just sort of always that Always that kid that was listening to music at the record store and had the, um, you know, it was the eighties, so I had that really great ratted out golf hair kind of thing. But I was in San Diego, so I was tan, which was probably really weird, like this tan, tan goth, like it. Tan Uh And uh, and then I moved to LA to go to UCLA, and I just began a you know a period of like I ran the record station there and. Was interning at labels and management companies and whatever, and you know my my dream I wanted to uh, you know run my own record label. That was my dream. Um, and I started to work at Virgin Records right out of college in the radio promotion department, and then moved into marketing as a product manager. And um, it's like my mid twenties, and I was having the time of my life. Like I was, you know, on tour with David Bowie and uh, working with the Rolling Stones and Lenny Kravitz and Tina Turner and Janet Jackson. It was and Smashing Pumpkins. It was amazing, but um, those any any music students that are familiar with the mid '90s, late '90s, there was this thing called Napster that kind of swept in, and uh, the industry started to fall apart. And I just kind of, and it just really, the, the the music business just kind of really wasn't my thing. The label business, it was very slow moving, um, very old school, um, bunch of, bunch of old white guys with pinky rings, and it wasn't <laughs> much <most> my jam. <laughs> so I moved over to uh, the soundtrack label Polygram Soundtracks and started overseeing soundtrack albums because I also had a, a love of film. I monitored in film in, in college and uh, and I could never, up until that point, I couldn't reconcile my love of film and music or how do I make them work together unless I want to get music videos. Like I didn't know music supervision was a thing because they don't teach you that in school. And also by th- at that point, music supervision wasn't what it is today. It wasn't um, as visible. I guess. Uh, so I worked at Polygram Records for a while. And then, you know, my life sort of was also a series of record labels being bought and me being downsized and thrown out. And, um, so then I just kind of hopped around and I was an independent supervisor on and off after Polygram Records shut down. And then I was in-house overseeing uh, animated musicals at Disney, all those sequels like Bambi 2 and Brother Bear 2 and Cinderella 3. I did all those. Um, and what was great about those is I didn't realize it at the time, but those projects, at that time, we were the only people making musicals because musicals were really out of fashion. This was post Disney glory days of Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and pre La La Land British show. So there was a there was a period in the middle where there was not there weren't a lot of musicals being made. And I was I learned how to make musicals in this sort of little weird corner of Disney. And little did I know that that was going to serve me well in the future um, as I packed up that knowledge. But um, after Disney, I was independent for a while, then went to Lucasfilm and was uh, oversaw music there for a while. And worked really closely with George, which is just a dream come true. Uh, then Disney bought the company, got laid off, and I landed on this little movie called La La Land and changed my life forever. So I sort of became this go-to guy for musicals. And a few years later, I had the great fortune to work with Alex Lacamoire on Fosse Burden. And that's how I crossed paths with Lynn and then eventually Bill and we've now we're now on a, like our third or fourth project together we're also working on Tick Tick Boom and um it's having a ball like i said way more fun than mine well
0: is it yeah, that was pretty good <laughs> so, that's that's yeah. that's you said great. like david bowie i didn't say david bowie <laughs> yeah really i mean i it's it, that, that's that's mind blowing that you got to work with all those amazing artists so I think you kind of set up my next question, Steve, which is, I'm really curious. So you guys have got this kind of group. I mean, you know, obviously, Lin, uh, Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda, uh, working with Alex Lacamoire. Um, and for uh, those of, of, of you who listen to our podcast regularly, you might remember Alex was on our show last summer when we did an episode about the the, the Hamilton film. So we know we know Alex. He's... Uh, quite a force of nature as well and, and, a, and a really fun person to talk to so between alex and lin manuel and you bill and you steve kind of talk to us about how this team works together and who's doing what on putting together the music specifically
2: for in the heights um uh sure so uh you know i think one of the best things about our team is that uh there's like implicit trust always to the at this point and. Uh, over time, we've all sort of figured out how to, you know, uh, who does what and who does it really well. But, you know, Lynn and I w- started working together in college. We worked on In the Heights for a couple years before Alex came along. This was 2004, three, four, five, something like that. Um, when we were on our way off Broadway, Alex at that time was uh, working on Wicked and uh, he came in. And then he sort of lent this authenticity to what we were doing because at that time I certainly had no idea what I was doing. And uh we had no idea how to make a musical or really do anything at that point. So so Alex came and then we, you know, we went off Broadway, we went to Broadway, and then and then uh Hamilton happened and then now here we are for the film. And I think, you know, it sort of is like a trickle down situation. So Lynn Lynn's the boss. Lynn writes all the songs and he, you know, writes all the lyrics and it's his he has this vision and when we were in when we were in our early 20s. We were, we always talked about like what would it sound like for in the heights if you walked from where we lived on 212th street to his parents' house, which is like on 180 something street, and like what, what are those sounds? What do you hear? And how do we make those like as truly authentic as possible? And then, uh, uh, when Steve came along, Steve lent the the cinematic authenticity to it too, because what's I, I think it's I think it's interesting about roles titles in movies versus television versus versus musicals they're all different so like a music supervisor for a musical is is one thing but in my head music supervisor for a film is is the other boss so like when any for anything to happen on in the heights we all go to steve like if we don't know what to do he's like the den mother father whatever we don't know what we sort of don't know like alex and i are sort of just like floating around in this abyss and then we're like oh god what what needs to happen what do we need to do we find steve and steve goes This is what you need to do this is how you need to do it and this is when you need to do it by and we're like okay great that's fantastic sort of like just pointing us in the right direction and then steve's best thing is steve uh very subtly gives notes uh, that you never even knew were there and he finds ways to slip them in in ways that are very artistic and very awesome and very helpful to the film as a whole and I love what he does it. So like we'll be on one call and I'll get a text from Steve that says maybe you should say this and I'll say oh maybe I should say that and then I say it. I don't know if I'm giving away trade secrets Steve but this is what happens. Uh, yeah yeah. Good, uh, and, and it's amazing and, and, for, and so and is it, is Steve you texting know, you right now saying like make sure to say this? Yes he's saying stop saying this oh. right now. Oh God sorry. <laughs> I've actually written his entire
1: monologue here, and it's just
2: yeah, yeah, this is, I, on this other side of my computer is just a script that i'm, I'm reading about. uh no, uh pulling the strings, Steve uh so yeah, so uh you know um, and then the and like I was saying before about trust is sort of Lynn sort of hands over these things to us, you know these these melodies and these songs, and then what Alex and I have done over time is sort of figured out what are the best way for us to contribute is, which is you know is shape and form and like where to edit things and how to end things and how to begin them. And then just to make everything that is in Lynn's head, sound as real and good and authentic as possible. And I think over time, I mean, we've been doing this for 20 years. Like I said, I think we've been able to sort of figure that out a little bit and like he trusts us and we trust him. And so there's all this like implicit trust that sort of really helps the creative process, if you will, that sounds sort of cliche, but it, it, I think it's true. And, and, um and so, you know, there's a line in, in the in the in the Heights book where Lynn says something effective, you know with Alex and Bill, I tell them some I tell them three words and they just know what to do. And I think like over time it's even maybe even shrunk to one word. Like it'd just be like Burr, and I'm like, okay, cool. And like we'll do that thing. And so, you know, we've been fairly successful at it so far. Uh and uh and that's sort of been the process, and that's how the four of us have worked
1: together. Was that accurate, Steve? Yeah, and I think trust is the key word, right? Because as you may have noticed, Lynn is a busy guy <laughs> uh, and he does you know I've worked with a lot of directors over time and a lot of you know uh, creators and when you're entrusted with their baby like my job is to one of my one of, one of the key part of my job is to know what the vision of the project is and to make that happen right so it's not my vision per se my job is to sort of help this the director or the writer or whoever it is um, realize their vision put it on screen put it on television uh, and put it on record. And most directors or creators, um, like I'll be communicating with them, you know, by the minute, like, Hey, what do you think of this? Do you, what do you think of this? Can you prove this? Can you prove this? Yada, yada, yada. But with Lynn, he's so busy that it, it's great that he actually can just sort of lob something over the fence to us and, and entrust us to kind of take it almost to the finish line, you know, without having to check in. We, we know it, instinctively when to check in. Right? Um without wasting his time. And he trusts us that he knows that we're gonna get it to the finish line to his satisfaction. Um, And so, you know, and that keeps the machine moving. It keeps him, it frees him up to do his million other things. And, you know, also like when we, as Bill said, we have a really great collaborative nature between the two of us. Like, you know, Bill and Alex are, are their own little perfect machine. And I just kind of vibe in occasionally and send Bill uh, critical notes, <laughs> you know, but also I have to, I'm responsible to the director and the studio um, and the studio, because of the way that this is set up and because these are Lynn Productions, they're a bit hands off musically, like they also trust that it's all going to go okay. So it's my job to report back to the studio, like, you know, and play them stuff. When possible, and just kind of keep just reassure them that we are making great stuff, and we are under budget, and <laughs>
0: that's great. Well, or or over budget, <laughs> over, over budget for a good reason, right? Well, let me let me just dig into that a little. Yeah, really. I, I want to just uh, explore that a little bit further because I think you know, um, in in a non musical movie world in my experience, the music supervisor is usually the person who comes in and is sort of in charge of um, the source cues. So um, the music in the film that is not the score, that's the responsibility of the music supervisor. And sometimes the music supervisor will get involved with the scoring as well. Um, But obviously with a, with a movie musical like this, the, the music is a, a pre-existing thing. And, and I'm sure that there are changes from the original Broadway show, which I want to talk about as well, but sort of that, that kind of role of suggesting new music, existing music to the license and put in the film doesn't exist in this paradigm. Right. So. To,
1: uh, it, it does, but to a lesser extent, right? Like, you know, I guided, there's that Chucky 73 track that plays in the bodega when there's fixing the fridge. So you know, I worked on that, and Bill and Alex had nothing to do with that one, really. Um, I found that that smooth jazz "You'll Be Back" cue that plays on the hold button when Kevin calls Stanford. Um, very proud. That's of that, your tour. By to, by the way. That is
2: your tour de force, <laughs> yeah, That is like
1: there's articles written about that, and that's amazing. Yeah. So th- that job still exists, but on these, you know. And then La La Land, I found all, you know all these you know weird little source cues that you hear throughout the film, but um, but that side of the role is diminished um in a project like this like in a project like this like it is sort of dead mother as as bill said and it's really just keeping an eye on this on the the freight train making sure that it is uh that it keeps going yeah
0: well and that's in contrast to we were talking before we before we started recording about your work on strange magic because we have we have lucasfilm in common so that was exactly the opposite which was a musical that was entirely based on on source music, right. Uh, that, that George Lucas, uh, produced and was directed by Gary Rydstrom. So.
1: Yeah. That just, you know, that's, that I could do, I could write an encyclopedia on that experience. I mean, it just, that film went through so many iterations and we demoed a few hundred songs from, you know, from the great American songbook and on. Um, and so that, yeah, that job was full on music supervision. Just, you know, George rewrites the story. I got to find new songs to tell that story because it was, a, it was a jukebox musical for those at home that haven't seen
0: yeah. it. Yeah. And George, obviously very knowledgeable and very passionate about 50s and 60s music. So that must have been fun for you. Yeah. yeah. So, Bill, tell yeah. us. something. To- <laughs> sorry to interrupt you. No, sorry, go ahead. Bill, tell us a little bit about the evolution of In the Heights, the musical, from the off-Broadway production to the Broadway production to now in the film. How has the music changed
2: and, and how did w- what's that evolution been like? Sure. I mean... Uh, at its heart, I think uh a lot of the sounds of it remain the same I, you know Lynn would say that that the what the production he wrote in college the only thing that still remains is in washington heights that 's the only thing that still remains from that time uh we I mean we worked on In the Heights for eight years before it got to Broadway, so there was like a number of iterations. there was a number of different songs. you know the second song in the show was like eighteen different things between off Broadway until we finally arrived on Broadway and and also other stuff, and then for the film, uh, since uh, there's a character, you know, there's a um, Nina's mom is not in the film, so there's a bunch of songs that she's sang that are no longer in there, and then a bunch of songs that were just sort of like Act Two songs that we cut, and then um, John Chu, our director, and Kiara, the the the, the screenwriter, uh, really did an incredible job of sort of concising everything and making you know it work f- uh, for what John wanted visually. Um, uh, you know, like like there's a song in Act 2 called Hundreds of Stories that is not in the thing. There's "Inutile," which is the father's big song about being feeling useless, and that's not in it at all. And then uh, a bunch of things we did for the film are Lynn wrote a few different lyrics. We uh, edited a bunch of things for picture and added little whoosie what's-its here and there and vamps and things like that. Um, you know, I think one of the coolest things that people seem to be seeing is um, in when the sun goes down, there's sort of this big... Uh, orchestral MGM grand sort of dance break that was never in the show that we sort of used a melody from some other songs and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I think the, the, the best thing about in the Heights sonically is that the, this sort of like Latin hip hop thing that sort of defined what it was in 2008 is definitely what still defines it now. And I think what the other things that we did with, 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 uh, Steve's help to get it to the screen was, um, Employing and bringing on people who we trusted, who who were really, uh, you know, stars of this their sort of musical world. So, all of the hip hop stuff was sort of produced by Mike Elizondo, who was Dr. Dre's producer. One of them has worked with Dre back in the day, still does today. Uh, a lot of the Latin stuff was made by this guy named Sergio George, who was Mark Anthony's MD for a while, and blah blah. blah. And then all of it is mixed by Greg Wells who totally got it from the beginning and he was fully into it and so i feel like uh utilizing all of these people's like very specific talents sort of just made it even that much greater but i think at the at its core a lot of the songs i mean all of the songs and a lot of the horn charts and a lot of the things are remain the same and so i thought that was to me that was pretty gratifying that like the this stuff that we thought that we made up when i was like 25 is now like 15 years later, like still resonates and still kind of works, was very surreal to me, uh, and um, and yeah, and like I said, gratifying, and uh, um, people seem to like it, so I feel like we must be doing something, right? I don't know.
1: So there we are. And there were lyrics things all the way as well. You know, as we were recording the cast, like some lyric changes were uh, ready for ready to go when we went in with the cast but then other lyric changes sort of manifested themselves as we were recording and we realized, Oh, that doesn't sound very 2020 or whatever. Um, and, you know, like we saved the lottery ticket reveal for a whole other, you know, just, it, it was a dialogue scene as opposed to it being embedded in Paciencia face, So that, you know, they had to rewrite that. Um, so there are little t- tweaks along the way that are, you know, not entirely seismic, but, um, but necessary to translate to screen.
0: Well, and I presume you also got the freedom to kind of reimagine uh, the instrumentation and the recording of the music. Cause you're not limited by, you know, the size of the, you know, the pit orchestra that you could, that you could have in the Broadway show, right. You could go a lot bigger.
2: Yeah. And I think that that was one of the most, you know, fun parts for us was the scope. Alex and I was always, we always joked that it was like, this is 2.0. Like we have beta that was off Broadway and, 1.0 which is Broadway and now we have the screen which is you know 2.0 and so it was always like bigger, better, louder like all the things like you said that we couldn't do uh uh in the pit we just we blew them out you know so so more produced elements a big like what used to be a string pad on a keyboard is now a 30 piece string section you know conducted by Rob Mathis and we just kept on going and kept on growing and making it more and more grandiose and i think what John Chu said to us in the beginning was like he's like it needs to be cinematic and it needs to be big. Like it still needs to groove and be like have that uh, mentality to it, but it needs to soar, you know. And and to him, that's like string. He loves strings and big orchestral things. And so, as much as we could put that stuff in and make it as grandiose as possible, we certainly did.
0: So, Steve, you're you're the expert in you know kind of taking this uh, amazing Broadway show and 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 getting it ready for the cinema and and putting it into the into the movie world. I think a lot of people um, don't necessarily understand how um, musicals work in terms of recording the cast and pre-recording versus live sung on set. And uh, tell us a little bit about the approach for the In the Heights movie. Was there a mixture of those two approaches or how did you go about uh, accomplishing the songs?
1: Yeah, well, we started um, a few months out uh, from the shoot. We brought all the cast in one by one. And we did—I uh, call it music boot camp—and we bring each actor in with Bill and uh, Kirk Crowley, who was uh, our vocal producer and uh, uh, piano companies. And we would drill the cast on the songs to sort of assess their abilities, and we're really just kind of train them, right? And also, they've all been living with the original Broadway cast recording, so we had to get that out of their head and find—we like, had to find Leslie Grace's version of, of *Breathe*, right? And we needed to, and you know, by the, by the way, Anthony Rails, like he just—he's Anthony knows what he's doing. He needed the least amount of adult supervision, so to speak. Um, and you know, we're like Corey, Corey has a very different approach to the Benny material, right, than Chris Jackson did. So it was, that that early period was about finding the voices, the unique, the the film versions of these characters, and then working with the actors to get there. And after we uh, spent a couple months doing that, we moved into the uh, recording studio and laid down pre records for everything. Um, even though we knew already that certain songs like Champagne were going to be entirely live, um, I mean, I'm a strong believer that you always need to pre record because you never know when something's going to go wrong on the day. And if you can't capture something live, then you're just screwed. So it's always good to have a safety net, right? Um, so we recorded everything, so we had it, and also that actually played in our favor because the weather kept screwing with our uh, shoot schedule, and we would sometimes like a, a song that was scheduled to shoot in August would end up would end up shooting early July just because there was a rain or something and we had to go inside. Um, but when you're looking at recording something live on set, you sort of have to look at a couple fa- factors like are you in an environment where you can actually get a, a credible vocal recording without interference from you know elevated trains and um you know people on the street or whatever and so then the the opportunities for live recording sort of present themselves kind of organically like we know that carnival de Barrio, for example to get the crowd live is going to be impossible because they're all dancing and hooting and hollering and there's chaos but usnavi when he when when it breaks down to his, you know, maybe you're right, Cindy Call in the Corners, like that moment. It's just Anthony, you know, and and we can absolutely record that live. So most songs are a hybrid, to be honest. Um, You know, Olga sang Pasciente Eiffel full out every single take, every single shot, every single day. Um, So there's material to pull from there. So sometimes it's just a couple words, right? Um, But, you know, a lot of articles have pointed this out as well. Like champagne is 100% live and mostly one shot. So it's um, that is just a a beautiful accomplishment by Melissa and Anthony, to be sure. It
0: definitely, it definitely um, sticks out. And I appreciate your point about just being realistic about, you know, the environment and what it's going to be possible to get. I mean, you're not going to be able to do live singing on 96,000, you know, with, with, hundreds of people in a swimming pool, right? But what does it do? What, what do you gain emotionally with a song like Champagne with having the actors live sing uh, on
2: set and capturing that performance live as opposed to a pre-record? I always feel like with with uh, with all musicals, whether it's on, with, on the stage, it's like, OK, this person's having a hard day, so they're going to sing about it because that's what we do in musicals. And they're just going to be mid conversation and break out in the song, which is ridiculous. In every way, you know, and so when you do it on the screen, it is still ridiculous in every way. So I thought what was cool about our, you know, what's cool about In the Heights is that is that John really wanted it to be as seamless as possible. So you weren't aware, if someone was lip syncing, you didn't want to know it, you didn't want to feel it, you didn't want you wanted it to be as real as possible. And, And I feel like so doing those things live is the only way to really make that happen, and and also you have to have actors who are brave enough to do it and to trust that they can pull it off. And Melissa and and Anthony were super into it, particularly like you said with champagne, um, because I feel like if if they had done that to the pre-record, the ability to convey the emotion wouldn't be there. And she, Melissa specifically, if I remember correctly, was always like was always changing stuff on set because she was someplace else. Uh, emotionally and so whatever she had pre-recorded which was like you know in a vacuum the pre-record happens in a studio and you have no sense of what's going on around you you know how you're presenting it to a person and how you're acting and whatever and so then when you can actually do it and relate to the person through song and do it really like it was on stage uh you definitely have more chances for conveying emotions and for it to look like a real thing as opposed to just being you know like a lip sync robot vibe um and that was john's thing from the way beginning it was like he wanted to feel the grit of of Washington Heights and he wanted it not to feel like a musical. And so it was very, it was really interesting. And I wish people could see our pro tool sessions for this because it's like, it's like words and syllables from, from live things versus pre-records. It's just like, it's a constant jigsaw puzzle. And I think that really helps to convey the whole, the whole emotion and the whole idea. And uh, I think it's very important to the film.
1: And also, I well, want to add to like the, the actors are always singing live when they're on set so we have uh, we're recording them just as a reference right so we uh, can match lip sync later it helps um and melissa it was was so aware of her character's emotional state at any given time because you know there is a difference between singing singing and act, sing, acting singing right uh and melissa would so, you know would be singing one of the numbers like won't be long now or whatever and would come to us afterwards, and she's like, By the way, if it looks weird on camera, that's because I'm singing totally differently than the pre record. Note it, I'm gonna have to go back and, re- and record it later. And, you know, we would sometimes get a note from a studio where somebody somebody saying, Oh, well, Melissa does it real quick. She's lip syncing accurately because it doesn't match the pre record. And we say, Well, that's the point because uh, she's acting, and now we need to go back and, um, And adjust
0: so you so you had a so you had a fair amount of like a adr singing yeah yeah
1: yeah. a fair amount yeah like she for example the uh the fight in blackout um you know by the way us navigating the COVID of it all is a whole other conversation when we were post. but um the we tried to do that live uh the fight in blackout in the dark alley but it just didn't work out very well and we actually uh, Melissa had to re-record that from a closet in Mexico, uh, during COVID.
2: Yeah. Insane.
1: As well. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, so that, that teed up. one. I, wish, of my I questions. wish the studio
2: was called the Mexican closet, but it's not. Sorry. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> you could totally trademark that. <clears throat> that teed up one of my know, next right? questions, which was how involved were you guys in post-production, uh, it sounds like you guys didn't just, uh, you know, be on the set for the pre-records uh, or for the, you know, playing back the pre-records, and then you went off to your next film. It sounds like you you were both pretty heavily involved all through the process. And were you were how involved were you with the actual mixing of the film with Lewis and John on the uh, on the, the on the dub stage?
2: We were with it the entire time, I think, from, from beginning to absolute end. In fact, the day before we all went underground into quarantine, we were all together in New York. Uh, us, John, uh, Louis, we were all there mixing the movie. Um, the way we did it for this is we mixed all the songs. Uh, Greg Wells mixed all the songs in his L.A. studio and sent them back and forth uh, to me and Alex. And then he uh, or then and then we, we, we mixed them uh in New York uh for a while and then took a break for a while and then they mixed it again in LA right Steve and then Greg went to that mix while Alex and I were here and we could sort of like go back and forth I mean like thank god for technology in the covid world we live in we were able to sort of mix in two different coasts uh at two different times and sort of all sort of get it together I had never mixed anything in uh you know Atmos or whatever dolk like all that stuff and it's it was one of the coolest most surreal uh parts of my life. I mean, I'm I live in a stereo world, you know. And so like when things are moving around and and there's a tambourine over here and all of that stuff, it was super cool. And I was just I it was uh, very overwhelming at times just to be like, you know, um because, you know, for for my whole life in the heights it sort of just lived like this. And so now it was like sort of living like this, which is which is sort of what you wanted for a movie like that, right? It's like you want it to be all-encompassing. And so the fact that we could do that sonically as well was super cool and uh super you know, enthralling, I don't know what the right adjectives are, but you know what I'm saying. And, uh, uh, um, and awesome. And, and so, yeah, to answer your actual question is we've been with, I don't think we'd ever leave in the Heights. We were with it from beginning to end at all times because, you know, like Lynn's best line about this kind of stuff is like when you, when you make something that's you're so close to you, it's like you're it's like your baby. And so then eventually you have to give your baby off to people and let them have it. And so we tried to not give the baby away for as long as possible until we really felt like we nailed it. And then finally we gave it away.
1: Terrifying. I was going to say the actual time of COVID actually ended up helping us because we were getting ready to deliver the final film, uh, April or so of last year. And, um, We got it to a point uh, where we thought we'd be ready to go to the dub stage remotely. And then we realized, you know, dubbing this film remotely is just not a great idea. And the release date got pushed anyway, so we had some extra time. But that time gave us the opportunity to look under the hood a little more. We remixed some of the songs. Uh, We spent time, you know, editor, like uh, Myra and our editor spent more time with John and cut the film a little bit differently in some spots. And we, it helped us sonically because we were, there was a constant ebb and flow of exploration of how much environment is in these songs, how much, what, what leads the environment in the music. And we would do some passes where, Oh, it's way too many footsteps of the dancers handcuffs. and handcuffs. Then there'd be another you know, pass. Oh, it's not enough. It doesn't feel a lot in the space. So that extra time gave us um, breathing room to find the balance because it was tricky. It, it, it didn't, it, uh, sort of manifests itself until right near the finish line. To be
0: honest, well, uh, Bill, I'm gonna I'm gonna express my gratitude to you for bringing up Dolby Atmos um, because I, I would I would like to ask you a couple of questions about that. It is the Dolby Institute podcast, so I would be remiss if I didn't.
2: Do I know. That. <clears throat> so, Please.
0: and and I gotta say, like the experience of hearing the songs in in Dolby Atmos is really spectacular, and and happily, that's something that is now pretty easy because of Apple Music and. And and obviously um the, the film is streaming on HBO Max and and Dolby Atmos. So a lot of people are gonna get to have that experience. But this is you mentioned this was your first time working in Atmos and how did you learn about it and kind of what excited you about having that tool at your disposal?
2: The short answer is I had no idea what it was and (laughs) and uh everybody uh uh, they said you have to go to this mix it's in dolby atmos and the 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 biggest fan in our group of dolby atmos is greg wells because he lives in that world and he knows all about it and he was so psyched to get to do this in this in in dolby atmos so uh um i went to the sounds the dub stage which is the thing and then we would we would do mixes of the of the soundtrack in like Dolby's room in New York. So, and, and then also we did it in for Hamilton as well. And it was just sort of taking things, like I said, that like that live in the stereo world and giving it another dimension. And that to me was just, I mean, it's sort of like in your head, it's how you always want to hear things and you never had the chance to, and now you can, and it's surreal. And, and you know, what, what I think about is like, when, when we went to surround, like when, when, when we went up to 5.1, blah, blah. blah and now like, like, when you make something the fact that you can think about hearing it in this sort of way to me makes you create it differently. And then like, you can push the boundaries so much further. And I just think that that's so freaking cool (laughs) because like, it's not just coming like right at your face. I mean, okay. So here's a great story. When we did in the Heights on Broadway, there was this one row uh, in the theater that we called the face melter row, which was like Row J or something where like, where like every, every, uh, Speaker would would hit you, and so every show, every time, every time in the heights went up, someone from RoJ would no doubtedly go to the the front of house people and be like. It's so freaking loud. I can't hear myself think. And we'd be like, where are you sitting? And they'd be like, "Row J. And we'd be like, well, that's the face melter row. Uh, that's the word <laughs> sounds the best, right? And so, and so now to think that like, not only is there now, like, like the face melter row is everywhere to me. Like, you know, you always try to find the hot spots of theaters and things, but now like you can be sitting with your AirPod or whatever the heck, and just be like in a park. And like, you're in the face melter row to me is so amazing. And I think that's unbelievable. And then, whoever was working with us at Dolby was, was explaining like, even with like, you know, earbuds and whatever, like you could still experience things like this to me. I mean, that technology is unbelievable. And I think, I think it will, if people like really uh, like understand it and, and, and realize how much it allows people like us to push the music, they're going to want it like that all the time. And I can't believe they wouldn't. I feel like that it's such a cool, awesome technology. And again, just the way I would want to hear things I've been wanting to hear things forever. And now
1: we, you know, get that opportunity.
2: And going back to our conversation earlier that we
1: had before the interview of Skywalker Sound, uh, when I was up at Lucasfilm, I had a, the the early days of Atmos, I had a demo in uh, the theater of Skywalker Sound, which is the best sounding theater in the entire world, essentially. And Stag? At the the Stag Theater, yeah. And And, uh, I think it was uh, that Tom Cruise movie, Oblivion.
0: We, we 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 use we used that as Dolby Atmos demo material for many years because it's such a spectacular Dolby Atmos mix. Yeah,
1: it blew my mind, right? And um, and then from that point forward, like we Strange Magic, this Lucasfilm title we talked about was the first musical to go through the Atmos uh, uh, system, and it was so interesting because we had all these tools at our disposal. Like wow, and we just had so much fun just moving. You know, music and instruments and voices and and just creating an environment and you know Gary Rston was directing and mixing, and he's just a genius, right um and it's just it's such a fun, spectacular, exciting tool to use in the music space yeah you know?
0: yeah i'm I'm glad to hear you say that. I think you know one of the things that really kind of surprised us when we introduced atmos um, was it was actually the music departments on the films that often embraced the tool much faster than the sound design and sound effects departments, because it just gave you such opportunities, first of all, to pull off of the screen and use the entire space, but also to place instrumentation all around you in a way that just made you feel like you were much more a part of the music. So I I guess just one one last question about this before we move on. Uh, Any favorite moments uh, for Dolby Atmos in the, in the soundtrack as as you're listening to it, that uh, you might point people to any
2: specific songs that you think, uh, are really fantastic in the format carnival de barrio i think is really just like if you feel like you're like you're standing right in the middle of that party and i think that that's couldn't be cooler same thing with uh uh definitely you feel like you're in the pool which is super cool and then and then i think what the, the my, my favorite thing about atmos now that i've been thinking about it is is background vocals Uh, so so you have more space to put things so when you used to like cover up or background vocals used to be in essence background with with stuff like with within the heights like the background vocals are the community they are this presence and they have to have presence and so they can't just be put in the back so like even in the in the opening song you know in the heights like that can't be something that feels distant it has to be like right in your face and we were able to do it so well Greg really with, with Atmos because it was because you have space to put the other things, right? And so then you can have the background vocals like really like be in your face. I thought that that to me was so cool. So great. Definitely great moments.
1: Ninety six thousand is the one that jumps out to me the most because I like the opening of the song when they're looking at the lottery tickets you yo, how much is it? And he's like, Ninety six thousand you're bing, 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 bing. And it feels it feels like a thought, it feels like a memory, right? It's or, or it's I don't know how to put it, but it doesn't feel like it's on the screen. It feels like it's in your head. You know, it's the best way that I can describe it, I guess. And then and the shot where sunny, opens the doors and enters into the pool and the the crowd. And there's a, what, what? And, Boop, blow, blow, and there's a siren going up. Like it just, you feel suddenly just sucked into the world of that pool of that community. And it just, it just wraps, sort of wraps its arms around you and, and pulls you in. And it, it just it gets me every time.
0: That's amazing. That's great. And Bill had a lot of fun.
1: That was a lot of Bill's special sauce. Yeah, we had some sauce. (laughs)
0: Um, So I want to ask you about working with your director John Chu. Uh, Bill, you mentioned that he didn't want the movie to seem too much like a musical, but at the same time, you know the way he's designed it and and shot it for the screen. There's the so many fantastical elements in it. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically about you know the the wonderful number when the sun goes down and dancing on the side of the of the building and so tell us a little bit about the process of of working um with john Shu and and kind of how he encouraged you to to rethink about the songs uh and putting them together for a film as opposed to the stage.
2: I feel like the what was interesting is <laughs> so you know. Alex and me and Lynn and uh you know we've been with this project for and Kiara have been with this project forever and so initially John was very um apprehensive about changing things and bringing his ideas to the thing so there was like this this two or three week I can't remember how long it was like sort of grace period where we were getting to know him and he was getting to know us and uh and he was so sensitive to hurting our feelings, about cutting things or reimagining things or doing things, but we were like, "No, no, no, dude, this is your film. this is like this is what we're supposed to be doing and this took a while, and then he started trusting us, and we started trusting him and you know the story now is like we send pictures of our kids to each other, and like we couldn 't be closer right but like, but like, my favorite thing about John is he 's super musical, having done the step up films and all this other stuff he he gets music and he He has a, such a vision, like I've never seen a guy with such a vision. like he's like, "It's going to be this, it's going to look like this." Then he'd show up the next day with like a fully rendered animation of what we're supposed to be looking at, and we were all just like, "What is happening? Like what is happening?" And so it was it was that was a crazy experience. And then you know uh he he knew what was going to happen ten steps ahead of us. so we're, so when we would be in the studio recording something, he'd be like, "Well, she's going to be looking like this, so she'd probably say it like this." And I was like, "How do you know that?" He's like, because I have it all in my head. Like, I just, I know what it's going to be. And that to me was so impressive. And then when it got into post, he had, you know, found underscoring we had used in the show on the Broadway show and sort of found these very artful ways to repurpose it for the film, which was so smart and so cool. And so, you know, all of those, all of those musical moments sort of still remain as this whole experience that we initially created for. Uh, Broadway they sort of permeate themselves throughout the movie which is which was very smart and very awesome and then his our sort of 2.0 vision that I was talking about before definitely was with him like it's just like it's got to be bigger it's got to be like you know the fact that like there's a thousand people dancing in circles in a pool and splashing and doing all this stuff. It's just like, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. And I, and that was his, he, he showed us pictures of of old school like synchronized swimming things. And we were like, what? He's like, trust me. We we're like, okay. And then, you know, it was like, it like, and then what's interesting about that is it became like a challenge. Like how could we step up, no pun intended, up to his level of, of visual stuff like with sonically, because it was so far out. And so I feel like we were constantly like one-upping each other in a way. And I thought that was that was a, a heck of a way to do such a magnificently large film was always trying to outdo each other. And I feel like finally, when we did get to the end, like the visual and the Sonic sort of thing all came together, worked. And and that was a
1: pretty major achievement, I thought. Yeah, and Bill, and, and, you know, hit the on the head too, we said, John just has a vision and he's very prepared. He knows what he wants and he sees way down the road. Um, when I first arrived in New York, I went to the production office, and Bill—I think you might have been with me—John sat us down and had storyboarded most of the musical sequences. This is early days, by the way, and 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 you know, two uh, at that time, all he had to work with were the uh, was the original Broadway cast recording, um, but he showed them to us, and they were so fantastical, right? They're dancing on the side of a building. Um, the, there are mannequin heads twisting and turning in Nomadiga, and that, to me, that was that, that was the pivotal moment of this production because I was, I saw I saw into his head at that moment, and there's a moment in Nomadiga when there's the nails clicking on the um, on the on the table, and Bill and I go, okay, we are we get this, we under, we are now understanding how this translates a not only how this translates from stage to screen, but what John's version of that is. Um, and even in those rough animatics, he had sort of, you know, played with the music a bit to make it sound closer to what he wanted it to sound. And it cut the songs a little bit. And it was such a, such a clear directive, like this is my version of the movie. And we're like, okay, we got it. Now we're going to make it.
0: That's great. It, it, it makes me want to ask you about, uh, uh, Ife, um, which, is such a spectacular number and so cinematic in terms of the way that it's playing with time and space and she's moving back and forth an era from you know first arriving in new york and it's it's such a beautiful uh uh, number can you talk a little
2: bit about the process of putting that together and kind of reimagining it for the screen i what's what people don't know about is is initially when lynn wrote it in like in 2003 four uh it was like 80 pages long and it and it told this woman's entire life story, like for every year. And we were just like, it was like you know, you taped it together and you unfolded it, and it was like this giant accordion. And so, like, our job initially was to edit it down and to find the most concise story that we could tell with that wasn't like thirty minutes long. And so, uh, yeah, and and so then uh, when it transferred to the film, a, a lot of it is very much exactly the same. Um, Abuela's journey has always been kind of similar from from. Uh, from the except for when she passes away <laughs> but uh but uh uh um it worked for this because that song is was so at its core was so simple it was just like this cuban rumba sewn thing that just sort of told this story and it was and it was i i think what led to its cinemagraphic achievement was the way that lynn wrote it i just feel like it's so clear and it's so well written and it's so you know you can see it's it's also very visual. You can see Mayor Laguardia, and you can see people struggling in the cold. You can see all those things, and then and then it just sort of those pictures is, are just what John Chu took and just like made vi- more vibrant and more crazy. And also where they shot it, and all the dancers and all the stuff that are involved in that were just so so cool. I I think that's one of the most visually stunning parts of the whole film. You just like, can't believe your eyes. And then when the pole is a light and then it goes back to a pole and all that stuff, it's just like, it was a very surreal moment. I, I, I'm i trying to think of like what major changes. I mean, the way it starts is a little different. The way it ends is a little different. I think we cut out a verse or something, but like, but um, that song is very similar to how it existed on Broadway for sure.
1: You know, Olga had, this, this has been the song of Olga's life, right, I mean, she's just singing this for decades. Uh, I it. And um, she had to work as well to find the film version of this song in, in her voice, right? Um, so in the studio, you know, you know, Bill can speak to this, I think, more um, wise <laughs> in a smarter way than I can. But um, but she initially started, you know, singing it just as she would on stage, right? And here it became uh, cameras right on her face, right? So it's a more intimate telling of this story. So it was about pulling back, finding the nuances, finding the arc of the vocal and reimagining uh, this character for, for film and for now. And she's just, I mean, she's such a pleasure. She's such a pro and was just really game to just roll up her sleeves and kind of redefine this woman that she's been living as for, for so long. And that was just really exciting. Yeah.
2: And she actually, when she came in to record the vocal, she had the original off- Broadway manu- uh, sheet music with her notes, like written all over it. It was a very cool moment. Uh, yeah. She's, she's amazing. I don't really know that there are words to describe her. She's unbelievable.
1: And there's two different Olga's like there's Olga when she arrives on set and she's, you know, bouncing and fun and great. And then she goes through the makeup trailer <laughs> and, and comes ages. out. And she comes <laughs> and out. She comes out as a boiler. Yeah. In- yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing well um any any final thoughts before we wrap up any any uh any anything you want the audience to
2: know about the process of bringing in the heights to the screen that we haven't already touched on go see it it's fantastic and i'm not just saying that because we worked on it it's a really good film and people and it's worth you know to, to to discuss the dolby atmos of it all it is super worth it to go see in the heights in a theater to really experience the full Fullness of it, for lack of a better term, it's just like to really experience that movie—the brass and the people and the sweat and the thing—and blah, 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 it's really worth it to go and see it where you where where we made it. So yeah, go see it in the theaters.
1: And it just—I I think too, like, you know, we sort of get into our, our heads like, oh, we're making this musical. And it's about Washington Heights. Like, is you know, you know, my parents are just you know, the rancho Santa Fe, San Diego, and I took them to see it last week, and it was—it's just. It's such a movie for everyone because it's about family and home and a, and community, and my dad like I, he's sitting next to me he's laughing at all the jokes, jokes that I had sort of took me forever to figure out, and uh, you know and it just it translated so well to him and he it just reminded him of all those old musicals that he grew up on, you know and he was like oh that was great to not have a movie about car chases and you know <laughs> and guns, um, so it just it it really translated to my entire family as well so that made me really proud.
0: Well, Bill, uh, thank you for that message. Yes, absolutely. Go see this movie in a theater. It's a spectacular experience. Uh, Bill and Steve, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about your process for bringing this amazing musical to the screen and walking us through it. It was really, it was a great pleasure
2: to talk to you today. Absolutely. Thank you, man. Good to see you.
0: Once again, I'd like to thank Stephen Gazicki and Bill Sherman for talking to us today. If you hurry, you can still stream In the Heights on HBO Max until July 11th, or see it in your local Dolby Cinema. It is pretty spectacular in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, as Bill Sherman can attest. If you haven't already, please make sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. We have a ton of exciting episodes coming up in the next few weeks that you won't want to miss. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in the show notes or by searching for Dolby, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on the Apple Podcasts app. It really helps raise awareness of the podcast so that we can continue to grow. Until then, thank you again for joining us. This has been the Sound and Image Lab brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry. Production support is by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Tristan Enriquez. Thank you for listening.